Um, if you've got a Bible with you, you can open it up. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10 this morning, verses 26 to 31. And as you get yourself uh, kind of settled in to that, let me, let me give uh, a little bit of a, a precursor to this passage. There are three big warning passages in the book of Hebrews. Uh, the first one came in chapter three, the second one comes in chapter six, and then there's this one in chapter 10. And the general sort of push behind all three of them is toward persevering or remaining steadfast in your faith. All three of them uh, are often uh, passages that can cause believers a lot of turmoil in their own faith. Well, am I or am I not saved? Am I persevering or am I not persevering? Um, when we arrive at difficult passages of Scripture that can be hard to understand or just a little bit of a challenge to, to really grab hold of what exactly is being said, we tend to go one of two ways. Number one, we tend to just read it, see that on the first blow through, we didn't really understand exactly what was said, and so we just keep moving and we leave it behind. That's not the right way to go. All of scripture is useful and valuable to us. And so when we come up on something hard, we shouldn't just roll past it. On the other end though, uh, particularly with some of these chunks in Hebrews, the other thing that can happen is that we can become fixated on them. That we see these challenging, difficult passages of scripture and uh, as we're trying to gain an understanding of what these passages mean, we can become so locked in on them. And this Hebrews 10 passage is one of those that it can start to uh, cause us to A, neglect other parts of scripture that would speak into what's being said in any given passage, but also it can start to cause people some internal turmoil as it relates to their own faith and their own salvation, which is something that can happen in Hebrews chapter 10. The right approach is somewhere in the middle there. That when we come up on a difficult passage, passage of scripture, our first instinct should be to slow down. You read something, it seems a little bit confusing. Go ahead and hit the pause button there and go back. Read it a second time. Maybe read it out loud so that you actually hear the words rather than just see them on the page. And then start to ask yourself some questions. Literally kind of think of it as like interrogating the passage. What exactly is being said here? Ask kind of big questions. Where am I in scripture? Old Testament or New Testament? What kind of passage am I working with here? Is this a narrative? Is it telling me a story describing something? Is this more of like uh, an epistle where things are being said more like in a commandment sort of way? That influences the way we read any given passage. Ask yourself where you are in the book that you're in. So in the book of Hebrews, uh, in the middle of chapter 10, we took a turn toward the practical. So this isn't necessarily a description of theological truth. The author wants to do something in this passage that's more practical to my life and uh, what it means to follow Jesus. And that can help you understand what you're reading. And then start to ask specific questions. Who is this to? What was the audience? Who would have been reading this initially? What's being described? How do we like define what's happening there? Are there some words that I just don't entirely understand that I could either look up the uh, 
kind of theological definition to, or I could ask someone, if you're in a discipleship relationship, I could ask that person who's discipling me, what does that mean? What we're going to do this morning in this passage is that we're going to ask some questions to try to bring ourselves some clarity to what's being said. Look at verse 31. Verse 31 is kind of like the hallmark of this passage. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The most, probably the most well-known sermon in all of Christian history is a sermon by a pastor named Jonathan Edwards entitled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Hebrews 10.31 is where he was uh, preaching out of when he delivered that sermon. Now here's, the thing, uh, we hear that title, we read Hebrews 10.31, and we think, is this describing like the God that I'm, the God that sent Jesus? Is this describing the Savior that I know? And oftentimes we can form opinions before we even start asking the questions. Why did Jonathan Edwards preach a sermon entitled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God? So that he could talk about the grace of God in saving sinners. Why is it that the author of Hebrews gets to this section and makes a statement that it would be a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God? That's what we're going to answer this morning. Who falls into God's hands? Why does that happen? How does that happen? What happens once you fall into those? We're going to ask three big questions here. Who is being described? That's the first question we need to get some clarity on if we're going to understand. What defines that person? That's the second question. And then the third, what destiny ultimately awaits that person? Let's pray, and then we'll read the passage and start to make our way through it. God, thank you for this morning. Uh, God, thank you for the chance to come and to worship you, to do that through song, to sing the truths of the gospel, to do it in your word. Uh, to read and understand, uh, have your Holy Spirit speak to us about the truths of the gospel, to be reminded of those, possibly convicted or challenged by those truths, to be encouraged by them. God, thanks for the opportunity to interact with one another and to actually live out and display the truths of the gospel within our church family here. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit this morning would work in our hearts God, so that we might have a better understanding of what it would be to exemplify the truths of the gospel outside this place. God, to live lives that uh, demonstrate the gospel, to live lives that declare the gospel, not just in our actions, but also in our words. Um, God, that's who we are as Christians, that the gospel has transformed us, that we believe the gospel is the greatest news in all of human history. And God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would capture us with that this morning. God, thank you that the song we just sang, for God so loved the world that he gave us his one and only son to save us, is not contradictory with the fact that it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Would your Holy Spirit illuminate your truth to us this morning? Help us to hold those two things side by side and see the beauty of them and magnify Jesus in the midst of it. We pray in his matchless name. Amen. If you would start reading with me, uh, Hebrews 10, verse 26. For if we deliberately go on sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, 
but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire about to consume the adversaries. Anyone who disregarded the law of Moses died without mercy based on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think one will deserve who has trampled on the Son of God, who has regarded as profane the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know the one who has said, Vengeance belongs to me, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hold your hands up, just like right out in front of you. Look at them. Think about what your hands are capable of. Your hands can do very contradictory things. You can create with those hands. You can also destroy with those hands. Your hands can be gentle and loving. They can also be firm and disciplinary. Even just like the actual skin on your hands at times uh, in various seasons of life could be like soft and smooth. At other times, it might be rough and calloused. Your, your hands are capable of very different things. Here's where we're going to land this morning. The hands of God offer either gracious eternal protection or just eternal punishment. They offer either gracious eternal protection or just eternal punishment. Three questions. Who's being described? What defines them? And what is their destiny? Question number one, who is being described? We're going to start in the middle of the passage here in verse 28. There's a conversation about the law of Moses and someone dying without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. What What's going on there? The argument is from lesser to greater here. Anyone who disregarded the law of Moses died without mercy based on the testimony of two or three witnesses. The thrust of what the author of Hebrews is trying to say here is that under the old covenant, which he's been very concerned with, if you disregarded the law of Moses, which means that you just kind of threw out and walked away from the loving means by which God told his people, here's how you relate to me, and it was obvious to people, two or three witnesses could say, yeah, this person has no concern for having a relationship with the Lord. There was no mercy left for that person. Look at the start of verse 29. How much worse do you think one will deserve? There's the greater side. If Jesus is better, new covenant greater than the old covenant, if the punishment under the old covenant was that if it was obvious that you had disregarded the means by which you could have relationship with the Lord, there was no mercy left, how much greater under the new covenant where everything has been fulfilled and the means by which you can have a relationship with the Lord is through faith in Jesus, how much worse do you think that would be to disregard? And then there are three characteristics laid out that describe the person who would do that. How much worse punishment do you think one will deserve who has trampled on the Son of God? There's description number one. They deny the person of Jesus. 
The word used here for trampled is only used two other times in the New Testament. Both of them are kind of helpful for like framing for us what exactly is being described here. The first one happens in Matthew chapter 5. It's when Jesus is talking about salt and light and salt losing its saltiness. And what does he say about that salt that loses its saltiness? It's not good for anything other than to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. That's, that, that salt has no purpose anymore. It's totally useless. The other time that that word occurs is also in the book of Matthew. It's in Matthew chapter 7. And Jesus is talking about, uh, he's kind of giving a short parable that you would never give pearls to pigs because they don't understand the value of pearls. A pig has no conception for like the worth of that. And so what would the pig do? Trample them under their feet. He would just stomp all over them because they don't mean anything. What describes the person who would find it terrifying to fall into the hands of the living God? They deny the very person of Jesus Christ. They've trampled on the Son of God. Think Hebrews kind of big context here. Everything that was used to describe Jesus in Hebrews chapter 1. He's the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, the inheritor of the universe. He's the radiance of God's glory, the exact expression of his nature. He's seated at the right hand of God. The person being described here would just slide all of that to the side, scoff at it. The idea that Jesus is truly God and truly man, they would reject that. The notion that Jesus is more than a moral example or a profound teacher, that he's better than all things, they would think that to be ridiculous. Like salt that has no use, are pearls that a pig cares very little about, the person in view here tramples on the identity of Christ. He's just useless. I was trying to come up with like a, a good way to sort of like bridge this into our modern understanding. And the only thing I could really come up with, parents, if you have teenagers or if you've ever been a teenager and you've got kind of something from your uh, upbringing that you just really, really love, maybe it was like a movie that you really thought was wonderful or a band or a television show, and your child gets to the age where it's like time to introduce them to this thing that you really, really love, and you sit them down, and you pop the, the VHS in, or <laughs> you pull out, you know, like a tape player, and you put in like the Beach Boys or something like that, and you're a little ways into it, and you're really jamming, and you love it, and you look over, and your child's like, this is lame. How did you ever think this was cool? They've trampled on it. You love that thing. You think that thing is amazing. They scoff at it. That is lame. That's what's happening here. The description of who Jesus is in all of his magnificence and in all of his greatness and in all of his eternal glory. And this person says, eh, doesn't seem like that big of a deal. Number two, just picks up right from there. They've trampled on the Son of God and who has regarded as profane the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. Regarded as profane the blood of the covenant. They deny the work of Jesus. So they denied the person of Jesus and they also deny the work of Jesus. 
that word profane, when we hear the word profane, our own, only real context for that is like cuss words or, or like profanity or something like that. What's being contrasted would be the difference between something common and something holy, something profane and something pure. If something's holy, it's, it's other, it's set apart, it's entirely clean, it's very special. If something is profane, it's common or ordinary, unclean, not special in any way, it's of little value. That's what this person who's being described thinks about the work of Jesus. No value. It's not worth anything. They don't think the sacrifice of Jesus has anything to do with sin. They don't think the sacrifice of Jesus was necessary for sin. They don't think the sacrifice of Jesus has any impact on sin. To turn that more personally, they don't think that the sacrifice of Jesus could do anything about their own sin. The blood of Jesus is just the blood of another individual. It's just the blood of another man. What's the author of Hebrews been at pains to show over the last few chapters? The blood of Jesus is a big deal. The blood of bulls and goats couldn't do anything. The blood of Jesus has perfected the conscience of all who believe in him, has cleansed them entirely. And now he brings that full circle in order to say that there are people who don't regard the work of Jesus in that way. They deny his identity, his person, and they deny his work. Third, the last phrase there in verse 29, and who has insulted the spirit of grace. They deny the spirit of Jesus. Only one time in the New Testament does the Holy Spirit get referred to as the spirit of grace. And it's right here. Think about all that the Holy Spirit does within the life of a believer. He enlightens us to the realities of Jesus, opens our eyes to the sufficiency of Jesus as our Savior. He seals us. Once we are saved by grace, we place our faith in Christ. He seals us, makes certain our adoption is the children of God. He regenerates us, takes us from old to new. He sanctifies us as we live, continuing to make us new. He grafts us into the body of Christ. He will glorify us one day. All of that is a work of the Holy Spirit. In all of that, is a work of grace. The person being described here looks at that work like a teenager who's just been forced to suffer through your favorite movie. You thought it would wow or impress them and it only got met with kind of like a quiet sigh or like a, eh. they rolled their eyes. The, C- the CSB the translation that I use says that that's insulting to the Holy Spirit. If you've got an ESV, it might say that that outrages the Holy Spirit. If you're holding an NIV, it says that they have disdain for the Holy Spirit. They deny the Spirit of Christ. Hebrews chapter 10 is often, uh, this section of Hebrews chapter 10 is often a passage that causes people great worry about their salvation. Am I saved or not? At what point has my sinning gone from kind of the normal thing that happens because of the flesh of an individual and tipped over into deliberate to the point where I would be terrified to fall into the hands of the Lord? Well, let me ask you a question. When you see that list of who's being described, does that seem like a person that's ever been saved? They deny the work of Christ on the cross. They deny his very identity as the son of God. They deny the gracious work of the Holy Spirit. 
No. That, to me, sounds more like the person who is described as the second soil in Jesus' parable of the sower. In Matthew 13, we're told this, On that day, Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat down while the whole crowd stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, Consider the sower who went out to sow. As he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it didn't have much soil. And it grew up quickly, since the soil wasn't deep. But when the sun came up, it was scorched. Since it had no root, it withered away. Let's see some similarities there. Some seed was sown. Some truth was given. Hebrews 10.26, after receiving knowledge of the truth. Something happens there. We hear the truth. Someone hears the truth. And then, in both the parable and in this passage, something goes on in that person's life. There are external forms of religion rather than internal realities of salvation. This may be the trickiest part of the passage, but in the middle of verse 29 there, How much worse punishment do you think one will deserve who has trampled on the Son of God, who has regarded as profane the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified? That's probably the most confusing portion of the whole thing. By which he was sanctified. Again, there are external sort of uh, demonstrations of religion without internal transformation of salvation. Second Timothy talks about those who appeared to be of the church, but were not, saying that they had the form of godliness, but denied the gospel's power. What's being described here would be to be sort of legalistic and pharisaical, whitewashing the outside with things that look religious and obedient, while inside there's nothing happening there. It looked like they were sanctified, but in reality, all they were doing was becoming legalistically moral. There's no good soil there, and time ultimately reveals the truth. What happened to the plant? It withered. What happens here? Well, it would be a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God if this is what described you. Hebrews 3.14 We've become participants in Christ if we hold firmly until the end the reality that we had at the start. What's the true test of the seed? It withered. The soil was never good. What's the true test of a person's salvation? Do they persist? That's what the warning is here. And it's a warning that's meant to be an encouragement. You can know for certain that you don't need to fear the hands of the Lord. How can you know for certain? a good starting place would be, you're not that. You're not what's being described. Another way we can know and be encouraged that our salvation is true is that our faith today has saved us. We can know that it saves us if we still believe tomorrow. That's Hebrews 3.14. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this, there's a great difference between individual lapses and a universal desertion of this kind. The author of Hebrews says that judgment awaits those who reject the death of Christ because some rejection does not come from one particular offense, but from a total rejection of faith. That's what's being described here. What defines this person? That's the second question. Look at verses 26 and 27. 
The first marker is right at the start. If we deliberately go on sinning, this person is defined by the fact that they have not been transformed. They deliberately go on sinning. Now, me and you and every other person who has been saved by the work of Jesus Christ will continue to sin. That's because we have flesh. We will never be completely sinless and made perfect in this life. That awaits us in glory. And the key word here is deliberately. The saved person wrestles with their sin, is grieved by their sin, wars against their sin. What defines this person is that they actively, intentionally, deliberately, even happily choose sin. They know they're choosing sin and they choose it anyway. The law is not written on their hearts and minds in such a way that they crave the things of obedience rather than the things of sin. How do they know that's what they're choosing? Look at the next marker. If we deliberately go on sinning, there's one defining characteristic. After receiving the knowledge of the truth, So they have not been transformed and they have not been moved to faith. They heard the truth of the gospel and there was even an intellectual transaction that took place. They received that truth. I understand it. I hear it. You get in an argument or disagreement with your spouse. You've got wildly different viewpoints on whatever the situation was. And your spouse says to you, here's the way I perceived this. And in some form or fashion, intellectually inside you, you receive that information. I understand what you're saying. I hear it. This person was made aware of their sinful nature, the holiness of God, the work of Jesus, the necessity of salvation, and then they walked away from it. They denied, 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 were not moved to faith. Put this in context of what we just saw last week in the last section of chapter 10. What was the first command given in response to nine and a half chapters of theological truth about the gospel? Draw near. Draw near to God through Jesus. That was the first, all this wonderful gospel truth about who Jesus is and why he's better and the sufficiency of him as savior. Draw near. Draw near to God through faith in Jesus. And what does this person do? they move away. They deliberately go towards sin rather than toward the Savior. The rest of verse 26 says, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire about to consume the adversaries. There's the third thing that defines them. They are not one of God's children. They're an adversary. They've set themselves up as opposition to God. Note that those three markers, those three defining things, they haven't been transformed, they haven't been moved to faith, and they are not God's children. Note that those are the inverse of the things that the Holy Spirit does in the life of a believer. Those are the inverse of what the Spirit of grace does within a person. In the life of a believer, the Spirit of grace moves us to faith, transforms us by writing the truth of the law on our hearts and on our minds and enabling and empowering our sanctification process and causing us to crave the things of obedience rather than the things of sin. The Holy Spirit marks us as God's children, sets us apart as having been adopted by him. And so I'll ask the question again. Does this sound like a person who has previously been saved? 
that they denied the person and the work and the spirit of Christ. They were not moved to faith, have not been transformed and are not God's children. No, that doesn't sound like a person who has been saved. The saved person is defined by Jesus in the things of Jesus. The person being described and defined here is marked by that which is opposed to Jesus and what awaits them. Well, the passage is laced with those statements. There's no sacrifice left for their sin. There's a terrifying expectation of judgment, the fury of a fire about to consume them, vengeance that the Lord will repay, verse 30, judgment that the Lord will give. And then verse 31, the terrifying reality of falling into the hands of the living God. Those are hard statements to wrestle with. We hear all about the beauty and the wonder and the greatness, the grace and the mercy and the love of Jesus for nine and a half chapters. First thing the author of Hebrews says in response to that is you've got to draw near. Draw near to God through Jesus and then says, if you don't, here's what awaits. Here's what it looks like if you don't and here's what awaits you if you don't. And it's hard to grapple with. It's never comfortable for us to think about the realities of eternal separation from the presence of the Lord. It should never be comfortable and flowery and fun for us to talk about those realities. But they are realities. Charles Spurgeon says, think lightly of hell and you will think lightly of the cross. So what destiny awaits this person? There's a quotation in the middle of the section. It comes from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 35 and 36. For we know the one who has said, vengeance belongs to me, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. What destiny awaits the individual described in this passage? Well, judgment. And the judgment of the Lord is imminent. He will repay it. There's nothing left available to atone for the sin of this person. They will stand and tremble in their moment of judgment. And what awaits them is not pleasant. It's not comfortable to talk about, but it is reality. I will repay, says the Lord. Not only is the judgment of the Lord imminent, but we also see that it will be impartial. Remember who this was written to. Jewish ancestry believers. The Lord says, I will judge my people. The Lord will judge his people. And so a Jewish person is reading this. They've got the Old Testament ingrained into who they are. His people, that's them, Israel. And God will judge, and the standard that he judges by will be Jesus. That will certainly happen, and it will be impartial. What do we do with that today? I think what we need to realize today is that, the, let's just call it the visible church, the people globally, the people here in the Northland, the people in this church who walk in and fill chairs or pews on Sunday morning. That's not going to be the standard by which we are judged. 
we will be impartially judged based solely on the standard of Christ. And so not everyone who sits in a church on Sunday is going to be saved. I believe wholeheartedly that filling this room today in all of our services, there are people who come in and they're present at church and that's the thing they're banking on being what saves them. And yet they, they deny the identity of Jesus. They deny the necessity of his work on the cross. They deny the gracious work of the Spirit in their life. They have not been moved to faith, transformed by the Holy Spirit, and sealed for adoption as the children of God. God will impartially judge based only on the standard of Christ. Look back at your hands. I can do very different things. Create and destroy. Be gentle or firm. Loving, disciplinary. Might be soft. Might be calloused. The hands of God offer either gracious eternal protection or just eternal punishment. There's a little episode in 2 Samuel chapter 24. David takes a census that he was commanded not to take. He knows he's been disobedient and that punishment is certainly coming and there's a prophet sent to him by the name of Gad. When Gad arrives, David and Gad have a conversation back and forth and David says, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, Lord, because I've been very foolish, please take away your servant's guilt. 2 Samuel 24, verse 10. And then verse 24, or verse 14, sorry. Please, let us fall into the hands of the Lord because his mercies are great. There are two ways that you can land in the hands of God. And those very same hands will do one of two things. You can either land in the hands of God for a moment, having trampled on the Son, profaned His blood, uh, insulted the Holy Spirit, and for a moment you can be in the terrifying hands of the Lord and then be cast away forever. Or, you can be swept up by the hands of a merciful God and held there in a place where you will not ever be taken away. That happens only by the grace of God through faith in Jesus. Two options. Gracious eternal protection, just eternal punishment. Both are entirely consistent with who God is Both are just held out. We see the reality of that in the work of Jesus on the cross and we either place our faith in that and are saved by God's grace or we scorn it and deny it and we will face the terrifying reality of his judgment. There are two ways that you can land into the hands of the Lord. One is terrifying. One is the most comforting reality in all of the universe. 
the author of Hebrews, writes this section not to produce fear and trembling inside his followers, but instead to give them rock-solid certainty that they need not be afraid. If you haven't denied, then those hands are gracious and loving. If you have denied, it will be a terrifying reality in your moment of judgment. 